1946, three Bedouin shepherds stumbled across caves in the hills above the Dead Sea. Actually, it was more of a fall than a stumble because one of the shepherds actually fell in to a cave and he came out with a scroll, an ancient scroll in his hand. And seven scrolls were discovered by those shepherds that day and they, they took them back to their tents and they wondered what to do with them. In fact, they had them, they hung them up sort of on a pole and when visitors came, they would show them and say, look what we found. <laughs> and eventually, they took them to a local cobbler who happened to be a part-time antiques dealer. And he recognized them as something significant and he gave them quite a bit of money, $500 in today's terms for these scrolls. And they changed hands a few times until they ended up on the desk of a scholar, an ancient Near Eastern scholar. And he said, look out, this is something special. And so the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. That is the scroll of Isaiah, uh, which is one of the most significant discoveries for biblical studies for a long time. And so these scrolls, many of them being recovered, and they were in clay jars, And you'll see on that picture there some sort of a plateau and then it slopes down and you'll see some caves. And that's the caves where the Qumran community hid their scrolls. You can't see it, but to the right, there's actually the ruins of a sort of a a, a monastery, a Jewish type monastery. So the Essenes were a group of people like the Sadducees, like the Pharisees who lived in Jesus's day, Essenes. And they, they wanted to remove themselves from the corruption of the world, and so they took themselves to this isolated place, and they spent their time like think of a Christian monastery, except Jewish. They spent their time uh, reading the scriptures and writing their own sacred scriptures. In particular, they were very keen on the coming of the Messiah, and when they studied their scriptures, they came to the conclusion that there would be two messiahs that came: one would be a king, and the other would be a priest a king in the line of David and a priest in the line of Aaron. Now, how did they come to the idea that there would be two messiahs? And how did they miss the messiah when he came? How did they miss Jesus? And are we in danger of missing the true messiah? And today as we come to our series in Jeremiah, we're going to finish next week. This is our second to last on Jeremiah. As we come to that, we come to what's called a messianic prophecy. That's a passage in the Old Testament that points to the coming of the Messiah. Now, the word Messiah in Hebrew means anointed. The Messiah is God's anointed one. In the Greek, the word anointed one is Christ. So Christ is God's anointed one. Messiah and Christ are interchangeable words. And so what's the background of this messianic passage. Well, a bit of a background first uh, from the beginning of chapter 33 from verse 1. While Jeremiah was still confined in the courtyard of the guard, the word of the Lord came to him a second time. This is what the Lord says. Call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. So Jeremiah's in prison and Jerusalem is in siege. But God's word still can get through a siege and can still get through prison walls. And so Jeremiah has a word and the word begins with a wonderful invitation. Wonderful invitation. Call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. 
You see, God's people had passed the point of no return. Year upon year, Jeremiah had called God's people to repent. But after turning away time and time again from God, their hearts were so calloused, their hearts were so hardened, that even though the Babylonian army was besieging Jerusalem and had siege ramps up against the walls, God's people refused to believe his word. They were in denial. In fact, in verse 4, it tells us that God's people were tearing down their own houses, even the royal palace, and taking the rubble to the walls of Jerusalem to strengthen the walls against the siege ramps that were being lifted by the Babylonians. And God's saying, no matter what you do to your houses, you will not resist my judgment. My judgment will come and it will be severe. However, it's when judgment has finished, once it's complete, this is when the great and the unsearchable things of God will come. And so we pick this up in verse 12, and you'll have this in in the sheet that you may want to follow along, verse 12 of Jeremiah 33. This is what the Lord Almighty says, In this place, desolate and without men or animals, so this is after the judgment, In all its towns there will again be pastures for shepherds to rest their flocks. In the towns of the hill countries of the western foothills of the Negev, in the territory of Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem, in the towns of Judah, these are all the places where the Babylonian army was now present and in the process of destroying. In all these places, flocks again will pass under the hand of the one who counts them, says the Lord. Now, this in itself is not the great and the unsearchable that God's talking about, but it sets the scene. For after judgment, which will be severe and comprehensive and long-term, God will not abandon his people. He is promising a full restoration, and he uses the image of a shepherd with his sheep to paint a picture of this renewal and this peace and this prosperity. And so in verse 12, shepherds will rest their flocks. Verse 13, flocks will again pass under the hand of the one who counts them. And in this image, this shepherd image, we catch a glimpse of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. So the great and the unsearchable things of God will include a good shepherd. Not just any shepherd, but the good and the great and the chief shepherd, the Messiah, the Christ. But this is all by way of an introduction to the key messianic passage, which is verses 14, 15, and 16. So let's dig in. Verse 14. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the gracious promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. So it's this gracious promise that has the great and the unsearchable sort of locked in it. If we know what this gracious promise is, we can start to catch a glimpse of what the great and the unsearchable is. Fortunately, in verse 17, God tells us, so we'll skip a couple of verses to verse 17 so that we can understand what that great promise is. Verse 17, for this is what the Lord says, David will never fail to have a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And of course, this is 
a covenant, the covenant that God made with David. Uh, back in Second Samuel, David was the shepherd boy. No coincidence that David is the shepherd. He's a shepherd boy with a heart after God who was raised up to be king. And once he had established himself as king, God made a covenant with him, which we see in Second Samuel 7 verse 16. Your house, this is David, your house, David, and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Okay, with this promise, we're now ready to start to unpack, to understand what the, the great and unsearchable things of God are. After judgment, God will not abandon his people. He will renew and restore and will set over the nation, over God's people, the Messiah in the line of David, someone who will sit on David's throne. And what will this Messiah, this great and unsearchable person, or way be? Verses 15 and 16. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. And he will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. So let's unravel this mystery as much as we can anyway. Verses 15 and 16. What God is signaling here is a major and radical change. The coming of God's mercy will be tied in with the coming of the Messiah, the righteous branch, and he will be in the line of David. Now, righteous means that the Messiah will be right with God and he will rule rightly over God's people. This rule will include real justice and also tender mercy. This justice, this mercy will be a hallmark of the Messiah. The Messiah who's given a special name, the Lord our righteousness. Why? Because our Messiah not only will be right with God, but he will make us, his people, right with God. And his reign won't be just an outward compliance to God and his ways. Now, this is the problem with all of the other covenants. Now, we've looked at some of them through our journey through Jeremiah, but with all the covenants before, it was an outward compliance to an illegal arrangement. But they had all failed because they didn't address matters of the heart. And that's the difference with this new covenant. We catch a glimpse of that in Jeremiah 24, 7, where God says, I will give them a heart to know me. This is the new covenant. That I am the Lord. They will be my people and I will be their God. For they will return to me with all of their heart. See, the coming of the Messiah is a signal, a signal of renewal, recreation and revival of our hearts. A hearts that are captivated by a heavenly Father and His Messiah, and so here in these verses, fourteen and fifteen, sixteen, we have the beginning, the initial sketch of who the Messiah will be, and the great and the unsearchable ways of God. And alongside this kingly reign will come a priestly reign. Verse eighteen. Nor will the priests who are Levites ever fail to have a man to stand before him or to stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to present sacrifices. Now, this is where the Qumran community got the idea that there would be two messiahs. 
because these two verses talk about a king in the line of David, but also a priest. It just wasn't in their thinking that it could be the one and the same person. So they thought must be two. Well, let's keep going. You see, this verse here tells us that there will also be a priest, a Levite in the line of Aaron. And he will stand before God on, God, on the behalf of God's people. He will be a priest who will offer sacrifices so God's people can be forgiven and a priest who will stand before God and intercede and plead God's mercy on his people. And this king and this priest, these are the great and the unsearchable things of God. And because we're dealing with such a mystery, when the Messiah came, it wasn't straightforward nor obvious. He wasn't easily recognized. It's because the Messiah was great and because his ways are unsearchable that he was largely missed. And the Gospel of John explains this or shows us what this was like. John chapter 1 verse 10. Jesus was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which he was his own, but his own did not receive him. Describes accurately the missing of Jesus as the great and unsearchable one that was to come. And why did the most important people of the day, why did most people miss the coming of Messiah? Why did the Qumran community miss him? Why did the other religious folk miss him? Why was he not recognized and why was he not received? Well, it was because Jesus looked nothing like a king. He looked nothing like a high priest. They had fixed in their mind what the king should look like and what the high priest, and Jesus did not fit their image. Think of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. He was on a borrowed donkey. In fact, if you read it, you might even think it was a stolen donkey, if you know the story. What king comes into a city in a borrowed donkey? There were no trumpets. There were no soldiers marching, no lords bowing, no entourage. Yes, the people cheered and palms waved, but they weren't quite sure why. If you notice in the passage that Miles read, people were saying, well, why are we doing this? And they say, well, well, he's a great prophet. <laughs> well, see how they got it wrong? I mean, he was a prophet, but he was the king. So even in his triumphant entry, people weren't really sure who he was, and he certainly wasn't recognized as their king. And then instead of going to the palace like a king would to be recognized and honored, he goes to the temple and causes such a fuss that he gets into trouble with all the important people. You see, Jesus did not look like a king. He didn't act like a king or rule like a king. And yet he was the king of kings. And this is the great and unsearchable way of God. For Jesus is a king with no equal, to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess. He is the high king who was not recognized nor received, but instead was betrayed, crucified, and praise God, raised from the dead. And when, if Jesus looked nothing like a king, he looked nothing like a high priest at all. Yet Hebrews 2 verse 17 makes it clear. Hebrews 2 17. For this reason... He had to be made like the brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Hebrews is a wonderful book that goes into detail how Jesus 
fulfills the role of priest, high priest. And like the Jewish high priest who once a year entered the Holy of Holies offering the blood of an animal for the forgiveness of the whole nation, so Jesus entered once and all the heavenly holy place with his blood so that we might be completely forgiven. Great and unsearchable are the ways of God. The God who gave us a Messiah who was both high priest and king. Because he looked nothing like king or priest, he was missed. He was missed by the Qumran community who were looking for two messiahs. He was missed by the Jewish religious leaders who were looking for a king who would throw out the Roman occupiers. He was certainly missed by the Romans themselves who would only pay attention to a messiah if he was at the head of a mighty army and they had to go out and fight him. Great and unsearchable are the ways of God. And still today, people miss Jesus as the Messiah. Most of us in the West relegate Jesus to a cross between Gandhi and Mother Teresa, kind of a hybrid, you know, a very a very wise man and a very compassionate person. But in reducing Jesus to merely human, we totally miss the Messiah, who is both King of Kings and our great high priest. If we reduce him to just a good man who did good things and, and was kind to people, we miss the Christ who died so that we could be forgiven, set free, and have eternal life. And so we come to his table, the table of the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. And we come at the invitation of the King of Kings. He who rules over all creation says, come, come to my table. We also have an invitation of the great high priest. He who loved us so much that he died, that we may be forever held in our heavenly father's arms. So we come to a table wonderfully spread. And as we do, we fall silent. We are speechless and in awe of all that that table means for us. The great and the wonderful things of God. Now, words can express the depth of our gratitude to him who took our rotten, our putrid, our decaying souls and by rebirth has given us new hearts that we may worship God in his holiness and live lives worthy of him. So we come to this table. Why? To fellowship, to delight and adore our Messiah, Jesus, who invites us into the great and unsearchable things of God. Let's pray.